ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm your host, Chris and Lopez. Andrea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This week, we are transitioning from the spooky to the shadowy with our top three Thirsty Noir Vember picks. Now, ordinarily, when we talk about classic cinema, we talk about noirs for Noir Vember. But Samantha Ellis, back in January, was really, really hyped to do an episode that she dubbed Thirsty Noir Vember. So I'm going to let Sam explain the creation of this episode and why she wanted to talk about it. So Sam, what does Thirsty Noir Vember mean to you? Well, the reason why I came up with the initial concept is for one thing, I'm obsessed with Noir Vember. I feel like it's such an important part of the classic film community. It's a time where everyone really comes together to celebrate this awesome genre. The reason why I came up with Thirsty Noir Vember specifically is I noticed that each of us have one old Hollywood actor that we stan. With me, it's, of course, Jerome Power. Kristen has John Garfield. Andrea has Gregory Peck. I noticed that each of them, at some point in their career, dabbled in noir. Some more than others. When I really thought about it, and when you take a step back... All of noir is pretty thirsty, and that's something to celebrate. It's such a great idea for all of us to think of our own personal favorite noirs that are sexy, and I feel like that's such an important part of the genre, too. Noirs are really a weird genre because I feel like you can overload on them very quickly, mostly because they do have a very rigid structure in terms of how A goes to B goes to C. Unless it's November, I really don't watch as many as I think I would compared to musicals or just standard dramas. When you suggested the idea of Thirsty November, it made sense because so much of noir is wrapped up in the sexual without really noticing it. Most of these stories center around the nature of infidelity, which is in the world of film, when heroes and villains have to be clearly delineated and the bad guys always have to get punished. The idea of this marital sexiness automatically becomes this ultimate taboo if you're watching this in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And because of that, you get a lot of the production code workarounds. I have a couple honorable mentions on here that are best known for the things they couldn't get away with in terms of sexuality that are just a lot of fun. I gotta give Sam credit for suggesting this because people forget that what makes noir such a fun genre isn't necessarily the murder and the mayhem but the sexiness that whole concept of the forbidden fruit doing something you're not supposed to do and loving the murderer the bad guy because of it drea what does thirsty noir member mean to you it's such a specific kind of passion that's exhibited in noir it's very heightened you have this great introduction of 
femme fatale archetypes of women who are evil in ways that they weren't necessarily permitted to be in earlier film. And it's sexually charged. A lot of it is this concept of the forbidden fruit or people who are lying. It's separate. Most love stories or romances in film, even now, it's historically much more of a vulnerable, or even if it's passionate, it's Shakespearean obstacles. Two houses can never meet. Not the fact that these people are duplicitous and they all have hidden backgrounds. And most of them have at least two other identities. There's built-in role play. There's the idea that no one can trust each other, but they are all in lust all the time. Doesn't matter how run down the men are, and most of them are pretty run down, they are still in heat. And I have to appreciate that as a genre. We're doing our top three thirsty noirs, the movies that induce the sweat and the thirst and the lustiness. Is that all the criteria we generally had? Did we try to class it up just a little bit? I just went with who's hot. Maybe you two had more sophisticated criteria for your lists. It's hard to be sophisticated when our theme is thirsty, but I was definitely looking for, in mind, the idea of either connections or they talk about chemistry in film, regardless of genre, is so important and so nebulous. That's the heart of thirstiness. So for me, it was less, although it certainly was elements of who did I find appealing, but more, oh, how smoking did these people seem on screen? particularly for each other. Or sometimes it's more one person's into it and the other's not. But the lustiness for me was what did it. Just putting it out there, my main question is, do I want to see these actors or these characters bone? But I guess that's just (laughs) the crude way of putting what you guys both just said. That was perfect. That is going to be the button that when we make a Thirsty November button, it's just going to be, do we want to see these two people bone? So (laughs) we're going to start with our number threes. I'm going to let Sam go first, as she is the creator of this episode. So Sam, what's your number three Thirsty Noir? My number three is actually an out-of-left-field choice. I have to go with my pretty much all-time favorite noir, which would be Dead Reckoning from 1947. I don't see the connection. Well, nobody can without opening the back of your car. The back? The trunk compartment. Louis Ord's body's back there. Can I wait for you down the road? No, so. This is Operation Solo. I want you hurt. Either I get that Chandler gun or the slow broiler for you, even if we all cook. Of all of these choices, something that we obviously think about is the attractiveness of the two leads. I'm one of the minority that thinks that Humphrey Bogart is sexy as hell. It's really fascinating to see him pair here with Elizabeth Scott, of all people, because she's so similar, yet obviously so different from Lauren Bacall. So when you're going into this movie... It's already automatically in your mind, like you're watching Bogey and Liz having a love affair right in front of you. What makes it so convincing to me, in addition to that, is the dialogue. It's really flowery and romantic. I adore the dialogue of this film, I just want to say. But no matter what they're saying, 
the grit of their personas and the really heavy subject matter cranks the heat up to an 11. When they hold each other and when they say these lines, even though the characters aren't sure whether they should trust each other for most of the movie, almost in the same sort of vein as Drea mentioned, you're literally watching Bogey mess around with the girlfriend of his dead best friend while he's trying to solve his murder. You still want to see Rip and Coral's intimacy whenever they're on screen together. It's not an obvious choice when it comes to sexy noirs, but it's something that's always there for me when I think of sexy noirs. I have to chime in with it's funny that especially a contemporary viewpoint think that because Humphrey Bogart is not traditionally handsome he's slight he has a much more interesting character actor face than a leading man that said his innate sexiness is why he was a movie star even when he's grizzled there's something about him that as a woman I could say women respond to so I both agree with Sam but also it's funny the idea of not everyone thinks he's a sex symbol, but he clearly was lighting fires for all of his days, or he wouldn't have been cast in about 50% of the roles he was cast in. My personal appeal to Bogey is largely the characters he played. His on-screen persona is so much deeper than people realize, or at least men realize. Not only did he play these tough guys, he always had that sense of pining for his leading ladies, that sense of care for them, especially with Lauren Bacall. He always was looking out for the girl in a movie like Casablanca, of course, doing the right thing for the girl. Since he was that tough guy with that heart of gold, I find that so sexy. Okay, well, this lady is not on the bogey trains. Just gonna let you guys be the conductor. Bogart's a completely wonderful actor. Don't go beyond that for me. Stay off the train. There's more for the rest of us. (laughs) Why does that sound dirty? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So true. I'm going to let Drea go next. Drea, what is your number three? Well, my number three, I know, is your number two. So I won't get into it in detail because we'll talk about it when you do. I had Out of the Past, the 1947 film that had so many heavy hitters in it. Robert Mitchum is the epitome of sexy noir. He's really been through the ringer, but isn't he still a righteous babe? And Jane Greer is fantastic in this. Kirk Douglas. (laughs) It's got so many tricks and turns of the narrative. You get to see them lusting and being lied to. So I'm going to go into my number three, which if I could have titled this Thirsty John Garfield Noir Vember, I would have, but unfortunately I only had two. I know there are three, but I didn't remember a third one well enough that I wanted to include it on here. So regardless, y'all are getting two. My number three is, of course, Out of the Fog from 1941. Who would have thought on a pier in the middle of winter, a girl like you? How do you know what kind of girl I am? Oh, I can tell. There's a look in your eye. It sticks out all over you. Stella, dear, for the last time, I beg you, don't go away with him. Pop, it's just no use. I guess you must love him very much. When he talks, I feel like I'm burning. When he takes my arm as we go past a cop in the street, 
I know that someday that count might shoot him. He knows it, too, and even so, he laughs. And then I get hot and cold all over, and I feel like yelling. Everybody's rolling their eyes right now because I've talked about this movie to death, and I don't care because it's amazing. It's directed by Anatole Litvak, not one of the more well-known noir directors. Really out of the fog. Feels like it doesn't want to be a noir. It feels more like it wants to be a moralistic crime drama. But it literally takes place on the docks with a constant swirl of fog around it. It's in the title, so I'm counting it as a noir. Out of the Fog tells the story of two men played by Thomas Mitchell and John Quaylen. They are local fishermen who dream of buying a boat so that they can go out on the open ocean and not have to deal with their fact that poor Olaf, who is the John Quaylen character, is being sexually harassed by his boss. Or that Thomas Mitchell's character Jonah is stuck at home with a shrewish wife who's always ill, played by Eileen McMahon. They just want to be out on the sea with each other. It's a little homoerotic. It wouldn't be an episode with me if it didn't talk about John Garfield and homoeroticism. Hell comes to town in the form of John Garfield playing a guy named Goff, who is pretty much a racketeer who's going to burn their boat to the ground unless they pay him protection money. They decide that they're going to, but at the same time, John Garfield's character, because he's John Garfield, is also like, you know what, I'm going to mind screw with everybody in this movie. And so he starts taking up with Jonah's daughter, Stella, played by Ida Lupino, who really wants to leave her podunk little fishing town behind. She doesn't want to marry Eddie Albert or work at the phone company anymore. She wants to go to Cuba with John Garfield, damn it. And everybody keeps telling her that's wrong. But it is a movie that has thirst on so many different levels because not only are you surrounded by water in the entire movie, but you also have characters desiring things that they know that they shouldn't want or that they feel bad that they want. Jonah and his friend want their boat, but at the same time, Jonah understands that if he wants to get Stella away from the John Garfield character with her virtue intact, he's going to have to use his money to send her to Cuba himself. And Stella wants to have adventure in her life, and she is, like, hungry for John Garfield, but she knows that he's evil, and he might be kind of a jerk, and Eddie Albert's just, like, super nice, but she wants to go to Cuba, damn it. And it's just a movie about want. People want things. It's a great movie. You should go watch it. Preferably with my commentary of me yelling about Cuba for an hour and 40 minutes. So that's my number three. People do want things, Kristen. You're not wrong. People do want things, yes. That's such a huge driving force of noir. I just also want to throw out there. I've kind of realized that now. You've definitely sold me on this film. You had me at Thomas Mitchell, which I am very hesitant to say in a thirsty November episode. (laughs) That just sounds amazing. I'm here for it. We're going to go back to Sam for her number two. Like Drea, I also have one of my picks in common with Kristen. Kristen seems to be the one to know about the thirsty noirs. I do. I try. I try. But my number two choice is The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946. I don't know whose defense. In somebody's defense, probably my own defense, I knew that Kristen was going to pick this pretty much, but... I can't lie to myself and say that this is not basically the sexiest noir that there is. 
I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I'm going to wait until Kristen really discusses it in detail. Spoilers. <laughs> Drea, what's your number two? My number two stars my number one. So you know it is Spellbound, Hitchcock's 1945 film, with my eternal boyfriend Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. Don't forget this man. He has plenty to do with the terrifying mystery that causes this glamorous woman to risk her life and reputation in a reckless experiment. A woman who, because of her consuming love for this man, gambles everything to unlock the fearful secret in his heart. What insidious meaning did he read into the markings on a tablecloth? Why, even when he held his sweetheart in his arms, did he gaze in fear at the dark lines of her robe? These are some of the clues in the motion picture which bears Hollywood's most distinguished mark of quality. It's interesting because it falls into the element of who I am thirsty for. And it's always a fascinating study as a Hitchcock film because it's been relegated to one of the lesser of his films. Even a lesser Hitchcock film is better than most people's best films, so it's a relative list. A lot of the strengths of Spellbound get pushed aside when comparing it to other things. And one of those strengths for me and why I really liked it in revisiting these noirs and especially in creating this list of looking at a lot in this genre and in staring specifically at their relationship, typically, at least on the surface, all female-male relationships, the imbalance that's cooked into this genre starts to become glaring the more and more you watch. The women are generally given power only because they're duplicitous. Spellbound I like because it is the rare, and actually I don't know if I can think of another example, where instead of having a male detective or a writer or whatever stand-in for detective, a man who is unraveling the threads of some sort of mystery and finding himself in this crime element, but he's the one puzzling it out, Spellbound is anchored by a woman. Ingrid Bergman plays a psychiatrist. She's the one piecing things together. Gregory Peck, initially she meets him as a colleague and then discovers he is lying about his identity, one of my favorite themes, and someday I'm going to change my name and disappear and you guys are going to be so excited for me because you know it's what I've always wanted. He is hiding out because he has amnesia, as happens. She believes him, she doesn't, and he might have done a murder, he might not have. There's a lot of twists and turns, as always. But throughout, it's Bergman's character that is the steady line, and that we, for once, aren't really doubting the woman's perspective in it, which I find very hot. Call me crazy. Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman have a remarkable chemistry in this, of course, years later, it came out that they both had affairs and cheated on their spouses of the time with each other. Not great. Not great. That's my analysis of extramarital affairs, by the way. Their chemistry and the heat of their connection comes across on the screen. So all of that combined, the idea of a woman driving this narrative and being our anchor for things, and then a man who is allowed a certain element of vulnerability because of his amnesiatic state, these are things that make my heart sing. Spellbound, that's my choice. You guys might think I'm crazy, but you probably aren't surprised that I picked it. I love that you pretty much reconstituted the term private dick, considering that our leading lady 
is the leading lady of this movie and it's not a PI. I've seen Spellbound. I hate to tell you, but I hate it. I hate it more for the content of the fact that it's like 1940s and it's this very Dolly inspired look at mental illness and of course the whole ethical violation of the romance between the characters. I was just like, she would be so fired in 10 seconds. I should have brought up, obviously, the Salvador Dali component. He did these extreme sequences of dreams that Peck's character has. <laughs> I could just see Adrian Brody in a Dali mustache explaining those sequences to somebody. I find Spellbound to be a very interesting little film that I think often gets forgotten about. Yeah, you can't deny just the beauty of Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. There might be an Ingrid Bergman Hitchcock movie in my honorable mention. Sam, have you seen Spellbound? I actually haven't, but I have heard legends. I've heard a lot of people say that it's one of, if not the sexiest Hitchcock movies, and it's just been at the top of my watch list for forever. Dre, you've really convinced me to give this movie a try. I'm not a gigantic fan of Ingrid or Gregory Peck. I'm sorry to say. Hey, hey, (laughs) Joseph Cotton's also in it for a hot second. Okay, okay. That changes my mind even more. I need to see this movie. It's undeniable that they're both attractive. And I've heard that they're both really good kissers in this movie. That combined with the Dali aspect are like the two main things that I've heard about Spellbound. It's not the sexiest Hitchcock film, okay? We all know that the sexiest Hitchcock film is the first 10 minutes of Psycho. I mean, it's got Janet Leigh and Pabra Top and a shirtless John Gavin. Okay, okay. Did you make a good point? I lied about Joseph Cotton. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's one of those things. You can convince me that anybody's in in a movie that I haven't seen. And I'm like, sure, sounds great. totally believed you and i've seen the movie i was like he is there yeah actually conflating him with another actor i wasn't trying to mislead you but i didn't want to leave that hanging (laughs) why that's hilarious oh you guys i did a film noir twist is what i did (laughs) (laughs) my number two is out of the past from 1947 he ran out on me with forty thousand bucks i ate surprises myself you want to just shut the door and forget it? No, no, come on in. I like surprises. Your picture don't do you justice, baby. Why don't you break his head, Jeff? Cute. One chance in a million. One chance in a million was all that chump ever had in his life, and he made it good. So we went from out of the fog to out of the past. If I could have found another out of movie, it would have been on this list. So out of the past is directed by Jacques Tourneur, who did Cat People, which is another movie I love. I love a lot of Jacques Tourneur's stuff. It's a story about a P.I., played by Robert Mitchum, who is tasked by his buddy, played by that horrible human being, Kirk Douglas, to go find Kirk Douglas's character, Wit, his ex, Kathy, played by Jane Greer, who has run off with some money. Jeff, Robert Mitchum's character, goes to Mexico and finds her, and then they fall into this saucy romance but she double crosses him and he has to essentially get back at the people that screwed him over so a lot of this movie takes place via flashback as he's set himself up in this small little town he's met a good woman and he has to go back into his memory about the woman that wronged him 
this movie is so so sexy in all the best ways if you can just ignore Kirk Douglas's wormy face it's got Robert Mitchum who is the epitome of sexuality the man got caught with two women smoking pot and went to jail for it come on that's a man who knows how to have fun I applaud him for that also in this movie he's just so blasé about everything but you can tell that he's really into Jane Greer's character who comes in dressed all in white with this huge hat she is the perfect angel character but as we know in noirs angel faces hide dark hearts and Kathy is pretty evil there is a whole part in the movie that is a sex scene it literally is a sex scene they go into a room they open the door the door is left open because it's Robert Mitchum, why not? And it gets dark progressively to show that time has passed. Good for you, Jack Turner. Awesome to insert a sex scene into just a scene of an open door and a lamp. But at the same time, once the villainy of the noir landscape intrudes on their relationship, it's still all very sexually charged. The way that Jane Greer watches Jeff and this other baddie fight for a gun she's looking at it uh, you, you see the film from her pov and you just see the shadows on the wall but the way she's thrilled by it she's almost turned on by it is great you've had a lot of time to watch it so it's not really a spoiler but the end of the movie she shoots him in the crotch if that's not a whole freudian sex charged reason for watching this entire movie i don't know what is it is brilliant and it is one of those movies that as much as I love Postman, this is a movie about just the weird sex games that people play, the way that people are turned on by danger and violence, specifically, that is very different from other noirs where they're into each other. This is a character, specifically a female character, that is just turned on by pain and sadness. It's a very sadomasochistic relationship. And I think that's what makes it stand out as really sexy. It's it's the ultimate in forbidden. Not only is it a noir, not only is there murder, not only is there illicit sexuality, but it's this weird mingling of pleasure and pain that's compellingly watchable. If we just ignore Kirk Douglas's dumb, stupid face. Drea, this was your number three. What is it about it that you love? I agree with what you said. It's really sexually charged in a nice, interesting, dark way. Jane Greer is incredible in this. With noir, there's this need, particularly for women, to embody a sexiness, a very obvious physical sexiness, but they also have to have moments where they give sweetness and vulnerability and toughness and shrewdness, and she hits so many layers in this. It has such a great description of a character, a sideways description, which is when Kirk Douglas is hiring. He's wanting to send Robert Mitchum to find her, even though she's stolen all his money. And he says, I just want her back. When you see her, you'll understand better. And that is such a, <laughs> and a ridiculously aspirational, but like, oh, can you imagine that to bring out that kind of reaction in a person of, Oh, they don't even care that I stole money. I'm so appealing. It's so charged. And there's also the idea of the other side of thirst, a sedate, chaste thirst. Virginia Houston plays Robert Mitchum's current girlfriend. And this, like many noirs, has a really unique structure. It goes into flashback 15, 20 minutes. It 
There's just a lot of living in flashback as he's telling her about another woman, which is insane. If you think of so much of the story is being told to his current girlfriend, there's something about her character's faith in him. I found the ending of this to be one of the most sentimental outros in a noir because normally it's like bloodshed. They never end well, right? But because we've set up this other woman and given her maybe another romance, in terms of thirst, you can leave this with some more satisfaction than you might normally. I've only seen this movie once. I know because it's such a classic. Kristen, like you're not on the bogey train. I am not on the Mitchum train. It's funny comparing him to Bogey specifically. They're both tough guys, but I don't feel like Mitchum shows his vulnerability to my satisfaction. Even though he's definitely attractive, I don't quite get him. But there are definitely a lot of sexy moments in this film. Jane Greer makes anybody sweat. To go back to what Drea was saying, watching classic film is very odd because it is probably something that we're having to untrain our brains to now with the passage of time. But Out of the Past is a really good example of the way the movie tries to make male obsession for a woman hot because Jane Greer holds all the cards. Kathy, as a character, is the woman pretty much in the corner making these men act like fools, which is great. But at the same time, there is just something so immediately compelling by how these men are just utterly driven to want her back because they know nothing else. It's this weird catch-22 of classic films, the whole concept of they make possession by a man look good, but I know it's terrible. And that's how I feel about Out of the Past is that you do notice that she has a lot of power, but at the same time, she's really laid these guys low. They literally have nothing to do with their day other than to just think about her. And it's this weird twist on obsession that I don't think a lot of other movies do as well. And that has been co-opted and changed into something really dangerous and not sexy in any way, shape or form, but out of the past does it. And to go to what Sam was saying about Mitchum, it's interesting you don't see him as vulnerable. I think in certain movies he does have that ability where he's showing that it's a facade. But when it comes to Out of the Past specifically, he's a guy that thinks that he knows women and he's not going to get snookered by them at all. And then Jane Greer walks in. He's just like, yep, all of my thoughts just go straight out the window. And maybe that's the point is the script is saying that men don't really think with their heads when there's a woman that's smarter than them. What irritates him more than the Kirk Douglas character is that he has let his guard down and that he's been taken advantage of in a way that he didn't want. It's a really weird contrast of masculinity in the movie. That's true. I feel like he most convincingly shows me that he can be vulnerable in a movie like Holiday Affair. That's such a great movie. It is. He definitely has the ability... But I feel like screenwriters, largely the male audience at the time, didn't really care about that. For that reason, he doesn't come across as especially vulnerable to me, even if his character is. 
he just doesn't convince me that he is. I don't know. Maybe I'm being hypocritical because I like Bogey more in general anyway. I like him, though. I just don't love him. Drea, what is your number one? My number one is the best one. Not that this is a competition, you guys, but I feel pretty good about my number one. Mine is from 1950, In a Lonely Place. With or without his wife or tailing me. I've been looking for someone for a long time. I didn't know her name or where she lived. I'd never seen her before. And a girl was killed, and because of that, I found what I was looking for. First, you have to have enough imagination to visualize the crime. You're driving up the canyon. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person. Go ahead, go ahead, bruv. Squeeze hard. With Kristen's favorite sex symbol, Humphrey Bogart's. We've covered it. It's true. Thank you, Sam. In a Lonely Place, it's a Nicholas Ray film, and it stars his wife, and I'll get to that, Gloria Graham, who I think has some truly combustible chemistry with Humphrey Bogart. This film is a lesson for filmmakers, for anyone understanding the power of eye contact. There's something about Gloria and Bogie's characters, how they look at each other throughout, how they look at each other up close, how they look at each other through windows from far away. There's something about it. It is tangible, regardless of the other people around. It's so hot and smoky. There's a moment when the staging and the composition and the, if I could have seconds like Harry Potter when they have their paintings are moving around if I could have one of those on my wall it might be of a moment when he is above her at a really weird angle it's not natural at all and she's below him and he's holding her face in his hand and then ends up kissing her and it is so so good he plays this very alcoholic screenwriter so maybe there's a pun there maybe he's thirsty for alcohol all the time and that also fits be suspicious of his memory he is writing something and of course she gets to take on the form of the muse in a sense he reads these words to her that he wrote in his new screenplay i was born when she kissed me i died when she left me i lived a few weeks while she loved me if a character said that in a movie as an actual line of dialogue I'd probably roll my eyes. It gets excused here because it's a line he's written. And, oh, it's so good. There's so much throughout and the trustworthiness and the not trustworthiness. It's all there. But I do think the two of them is just impeccable. Similar to Spellbound and the affair there, In a Lonely Place has a heightened reality of out of control emotions, shall we say, in that this is the film where Gloria was found in bed with her husband, the director's son, who was 13 or 14 at the time. As I'll say with extramarital affairs, not great, not a great look. Gloria Graham was really putting out a lot of energy. In a Lonely Place is such a great movie overall. The smokiness between them is irrefutable to me. I love that choice. That really is such a good number one. 
you get both sides as well. Like you get a little bit of fan service all around because you have those amazing bogey scenes and his amazing dialogue. And then you also have that massage scene with Gloria Graham that's so sexy and so oh, tense. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That's the scene right there. I'd make another Harry Potter painting out of that. But then my home would start to look pretty pervy. And I would say, speaking of pervy, to be an equal opportunity, because we don't just want to malign women who did bad things. But Nicholas Ray, four years later, would also have an affair with a 16-year-old Natalie Wood while making Rebel Without a Cause. So... Does not make what Gloria Graham did any better or worse. It just proves that they're both scumbags. Thank you. A good point. Here, here for scumbags. All around. <laughs> Sam, what is your number one? It's a given that I list at least one time movie as my number one. But I was really torn about which of the two noir films that he made to include. Because they're so different from each other. Neither of them really make a convincing argument on their own that it's really qualifies for Thirsty Noir Vember. But I have to go with both for different reasons. Both Johnny Apollo from 1940 and Nightmare Alley from 1947. <laughs> on one hand, you've got Johnny Apollo, which is the first and the most traditional noir that Ty made. He stars as the son of an imprisoned embezzler. At first, he resents his father, but eventually he realizes as he grows up that he was right all along, and he makes it his goal to free his dad, but eventually he becomes a criminal himself in his attempt. His romantic involvement is with the crime boss's girlfriend, Lucky, played by Dorothy L'Amour, Honestly, I could not think of a more attractive pairing for a noir made in 1940. I don't believe we've really discussed Dorothy on the podcast much, but she's absolutely amazing. And I just love that there is an opportunity to see her on screen with Ty. They both really wanted to make a movie together. While unfortunately the movie doesn't really deliver, there are gratuitous shots of shirtless Ty as well as some really gorgeous close-ups of both leads. I think it's really great that they were both in their prime when this movie was made as well. This movie makes me like that scene in Princess Diaries where they're going through the list of eligible princes and they're like, I just love to look at him. So that's kind of how it qualifies for me. I just have the feeling. That's why I'm going to keep away from you. You know... I wonder why I'm like that. Like what? I'm never thinking about anybody, except myself. Well, you don't think I'd go without you. You mean that, Stan? Absolutely. You satisfied? Oh, Stan, I don't care for nothing now. Nothing in the world. Conversely, I was really hesitant to put Nightmare Alley on this list at all because of the really drastic physical decline that Ty's character makes throughout the film. But at the end of the day, this one probably is more convincing as a thirsty noir, because Ty is such a predatory character as he pursues not only his own ambitions, but also not one, but three female leads. 
And he absolutely uses his charm and his sexual allure to get what he wants from all three of them, which is really captivating and fascinating to watch. I love him opposite Colleen Gray the most. I love that scene of her with the electricity wearing that revealing costume. It's the perfect metaphor for how electrically charged and tense this movie is as a whole, as well as how Ty makes me feel. I wish going into how much Ty loved making that movie and how invested he got in the part had any relevancy here, but it doesn't. But it's still a sexy film anyway. And there are shirtless tie scenes in this movie, too. Ah, uh, shirtless tie scenes. What it all comes down to. I'm just kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> you put in a good case for those. And I have to give you any kind of credit that we said we would do a top three list. And you were like, of course, my number one are these two films. Sorry, my boyfriend. <laughs> I had I to. I, I get had it. To. You had to. <laughs> It's like two halves, basically, because they don't really singularly qualify. So I had to throw out my points on both of them. But the more I talk about it, the more I think Nightmare Alley probably should be my number one. Because Johnny Apollo is just not a quality film. The only thing I have to... (laughs) Not being able to choose between two loves is a very noir trait. So I think you're fine. Just lean into it. Good point. Thank you, Trina. Remember that we will do Nightmare Alley when Bradley Cooper's version comes out so that I can hear you internally scream as we talk about it. (laughs) Mm, Okay, well, if we're going to get into this, I still would not (laughs) mind Leonardo DiCaprio. I would be okay with that, but I'm not okay with Bradley Cooper. Well, Bradley Cooper's what you're getting. No. Moving on to my number one, a movie that they did actually remake in 1981, and I have not seen the remake because you do not just get to go from making a John Garfield movie to making a Jack Nicholson movie. I'm sorry, if there's one man I don't get more than Humphrey Bogart for sex appeal, it's Jack Nicholson. I'm sorry. I don't get it. I've never gotten it. I'm never going to get it. And I've met Jack Nicholson. I'm doing The Postman Always Rings Twice. There's one thing we could do that would fix everything for us. What? Pray for something to happen to Nick? Something like that. Cora. Well, you suggested it yourself once, didn't you? I was only joking. Were you? Yes, I was. Or had you started to think about it a little? Maybe I said it, but I didn't really mean it. Well, I say it again now, and I do mean it. Frank, Frank, listen to me. I'm not what you think I am. I've made a big mistake in my life, and I've got to be this way just once to fix it. They hang you for a thing like that. Oh, but not if you do it right. And you're smart, Frank. You'll think of a way. Plenty of men have. You never did any harm to me. Darling, can't you see how happy you and I would be together here without him? From 1946, I seem to stay in the same time frame. We've talked about Postman. We did a whole episode, so I'm not going to belabor the plot too much, but suffice it to say, John Garfield plays a lovable drifter in the days when you could be a drifter and not believe that you somebody was going to end up murdered in their sleep, who ends up stopping in at a sleepy roadside diner and falling in love with the boss's wife, Cora, played by Lana Turner, murder and mayhem and dead cats, ensue and that's not a metaphor but it is a metaphor but it's also something that actually happens in the movie we talked about this during the episode so i'm not gonna 
bring up too much about it, but when Sam brought up the concept of thirsty noir vember, this was the movie that I thought of. Even though it's not one of my favorite noirs, it's a movie that I think conjures up sex. Characters sweat throughout the entire movie. That is how intense the emotion and the sexuality is. And it helps that you have two of the most beautiful people at that time who just ooze sexuality, Wenna Turner and John Garfield. It probably helped that they also had slept together. That also colored things a bit. You watch this movie and there is just so much passion between the two of them. Everybody's at the beach, so there's a lot of 1940s bathing suits, which I'm not going to complain about any time John Garfield was in a 1940s bathing suit. There's just so much subtext, roaring waves, water, water everywhere. Everything is a metaphor for sex, and it is amazing. And you know, even poor Cecil Calloway, who plays Lana Turner's husband, it's a movie about sexuality, and he's the one guy that isn't necessarily a sexual figure in the movie. And in fact, I think we brought this up in the episode, we question whether he's intentionally pushing Frank and Cora together because he's just not into that aspect. I don't know. It is just so much soapiness and salaciousness and John Garfield is just like firing on all cylinders. Pretty sure I mentioned it in an episode, but there's a couple moments in the movie that I'm fairly certain were just shtick on his part. Things that he did with women that he's just ingrained in his brain. But if you watch in the movie, the first moment that he meets Cora and he's got the lipstick in his hand and she puts her arm out to him hand it to her and he pulls it towards him he does that in other movies and i'm pretty sure that he did that in reality i love it even though it's not my favorite john garfield movie it is still the sexiest of noirs that i can think of i had a whole mental thing in my head why this was my number two choice why this is and i'm speaking objectively the sexiest movie in noir but you just hit the nail right on the head with it. So much of this works right. It's just perfect. The body language, the dialogue, the casting. Lana doesn't get hotter than her. And then John Garfield, he just exudes this animal magnetism. He just draws everybody to him. You can't look away. It's like you're watching a train crash. They're so perfect and imperfect for each other. I think it's their relationship that drives this movie and makes it so great. I don't have enough great things to say about this film, especially the sexiness of it. I want to insert a quote. It's totally irrelevant, but I feel like it describes them perfectly. I read a while back about Katherine Hepburn talking about Bogey and Bacall this applies perfectly to Cora and Frank. When they fought, it was with the utter confidence of two cats locked deliciously in the same cage. That's just them in a nutshell. I might have been talking about John Garfield's sexiness while staring at the framed photo I have of John Garfield in my room. So I feel like he would approve right now. Well, I live with two cats and it's not hot at all, but I do get where... Sam is coming from with that quote. We talked about Postman in detail. That film is smoking. It's so good. They're so hot. You mentioned this with the summerness of it. 
I can feel how warm it is. It feels humid when you're watching it. Their closeness and how they're circling each other. His whole thing with how he lights cigarettes and uses matches. It's just hot. It's a smoke show. That it is. Talk about some honorable mentions. Anything that almost made the list but didn't. I almost had 1946's Notorious on here, which is the Alfred Hitchcock movie I was talking about with Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. This is the movie that infamously got around the kissing rule because you could only kiss for 10 seconds at one time. So Hitchcock got around that by having Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant kiss several times for one to two seconds. So it becomes this four minute scene of them making out, but they're well within the rules of the censors at the time. And that's just a brilliant movie about slut shaming. It's hot in how Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant have this relationship, but it's just an abusive relationship because he treats her like garbage the entire movie. I also was going to include a pair of Monty Clift movies that I was not sure if they were considered noir, but I googled them and it turns out that people consider them that way. I was going to include A Place in the Sun and The Heiress, two very different movies, but they show Monty Clift at the height of his powers being able to drive women crazy, whether it's poor Olivia de Havilland as the dour heiress he sees her as just a meal ticket or whether he's torn between poor Shelley Winters and Liz Taylor, which that's not a competition, but the movie really tries hard. Shelley might stand a shot. She doesn't. So those are my honorable mentions. Sam, what about you? I definitely have two in mind. First, I want to say, as soon as you said Montgomery Clift, I knew you're talking about A Place in the Sun. That movie is so hot. My main two honorable mentions objectively as far as a sexual noir definitely gilda i'm personally not attracted to glenn ford but i am attracted to rita hayworth and they are just sizzling on screen in that movie it's the epitome of sexual tension you don't know whether they love each other or they hate each other It makes you feel like they're having sex through the whole movie, but you never even really see the shades being drawn or anything like that. But it's still so intimate and so sexual, and you really feel their chemistry. As far as my other choice, this is more subjective. I would definitely say Laura, I've never wanted two characters to get together more than Mark and Laura. They're just so great together. The dialogue is perfect. It's exactly what I was talking about earlier, where you have the tough guy that really shows his vulnerability and would do absolutely anything for his leading lady that applies here so well you see how she tears him up inside eventually in the second act how she warms up to him it's just so amazing to watch i love them together and i think that movie has a lot of chemistry as well Drea, honorable mentions i was gonna say postman before i knew your list so i'm glad you said that And that only was an honorable mention because I didn't want to put it on my list since we'd already talked about it. It's a worthy contender. My other one that I'd been wondering about was Criss Cross. 
from 1949, which to me is a standout entirely because of Yvonne DiCarlo. She's so incredible in that. She's an interesting talent, and I would have liked to have seen even more stuff with her because this was made after The Killers and it's Burt Lancaster. So having it not be Ava Gardner was already interesting. If you, you see that filmography in order, there's just a lot of layers to Yvonne DiCarlo. And there's some really standout moments. She's an abused wife. Of course, it's got the beautiful clothes of a lot of these films. This one's no different. But she lowers her short jacket to show him her bruises, which does not sound like something that should be sexy because horrible. Oh my God, I'm really bringing up a lot of bad stuff today. But anyway, she's wonderful in it. And the two of them have interesting chemistry. His obsession with her gives it a lot of teeth. Crisscross. I got two more. Can I throw out two more? Sure. I had two that I kept reminding myself that I really, really wanted to bring up, and I completely forgot them, which shows you how memorable they are. I do also want to make an argument, if we're talking about are they noirs or are they crime dramas, for the 1960 film Private Property. If you can find a copy, definitely go watch it, because it is this gritty, low-budget, smutty story about, again, two drifters, because that's what it's all about, played by Warren Oates and Corey Allen, Corey Allen, I think, is gorgeous. If you've seen Rebel Without a Cause, he played the dickish boyfriend of Natalie Wood that dies. I mean, I'm always watching Rebel Without a Cause saying, James Dean's great, but Corey Allen. They decide to essentially take over a house next door to a beautiful woman, and the goal is to get the other drifter, played by Warren Oates, laid by any means necessary. It's almost like the low-budget companion to Postman, if Postman had no money. It's really worthwhile. And I also wanted to throw out, I forgot about it too, Phantom Lady. If you've not seen Phantom Lady, go watch it. Actually, go watch all of Ella Raines' noirs if you can find them. This is from 1944, and Ella Raines plays a secretary who's friend-zoned by her boss, who's played by Francho Tone. She could do so much better. He murders his wife, supposedly, and she knows that he didn't do it. So she's going to go undercover to try to solve the mystery by herself. And the only reason I bring it up is there is a whole extended sequence where she's seducing Elisha Cook Jr., who's a drummer. She's sitting in the front row, gyrating, and he's playing the drum. It's obviously supposed to be a sex scene, and he's sweating, banging on the drums, and she's like writhing around in the seat. It is worth the price of admission. We also got a couple listener comments who wanted to share their thirstiest noirs. The first one comes from Ralph Thompson Jr. at some random old dude. I really applaud your handle. Who said, out of the past with Jane Greer. Terrence Towles Canote at Mercury 80 said, that is a tough one. I can only say it's a tie between out of the past and the postman always rings twice. Mary M. Schweitzer at Doc Mary 75 said, I watch anything with John Garfield in it. A woman after my own heart. And Patricia Nolan Hall at Caftan Woman said the big combo, the obsession is intense. If you didn't get in your thoughts on your thirstiest film noirs, you can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. But that's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. My co-hosts do a million other things outside of this podcast. Sam, where can fans find and get in touch with you, read your work? I have been on a bit of a hiatus, but you can find my work at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. 
I just posted a recipe about Anne Blythe, another noir lady, and her blueberry muffins, which are really good. And you can find my recipes all the time on classicmoviehub.com with my Cooking with the Stars series. And you can follow me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. Drea Clark, where can fans find and get in touch with you, see your other stuff? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I have a weekly contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya? You can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And remember, if you want to buy any of the movies that we've brought up, they will be on our Amazon shop. If you buy your stuff through Amazon through our list, a couple dollars of that gets kicked back over to the podcast. That's at amazon.com slash shop slash journeys underscore film. And if you want to read my thoughts on classic film, they don't always come out in a timely fashion, but they are over at journeys in classicfilm.com. You can contact the podcast directly at ticklishbiz, that's B-I-Z, at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. And if you want to do more to support the podcast and hear upcoming episodes, get special pins, then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We have a wealth of amazing perks. All your donations go right back into making Ticklish Business the classic film podcast that it is. If you donate just a dollar, you get a special Ticklish Business created pin. And if you donate more than that, you get access to my two bonus shows based on a true podcast and double features, as well as a wealth of interviews. My interview with Tom Sturgis, son of Preston Sturgis, is now available for patrons to listen to. And in the coming weeks, I'll have interviews with director of the Audrey Hepburn story himself, Stephen Robman, and the director of Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows, Robert Ackerman. Got a lot of stuff coming on there, and that is at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We are actually going to be taking a hiatus because we are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving with our families. So we will be back December 11th with our Christmas episode, which is going to be decided on by you guys. So we don't actually know what we're going to be talking about, except that it will be Christmas time. Enjoy the break. We'll be releasing Patreon content to cushion the blow, and we will see you again in December.